0: Hey guys, your friend Spencer here. Thank you guys so very much for being members of our channel. Your support helps us to bring great content to you on a regular basis like we do. Thank you guys so very much for that. And uh, you are appreciated and you are prayed for by us. We want to uh, bring to you a study on the book of Revelation that we did. We did actually five different videos on that. And I believe we put four of them together. Brother Chris and helped us with that. And we appreciate him so much. And so now we're just going to put it all out there for you you can have it all and have it here in this format all condensed together and so we appreciate you guys so very much and please please uh pray for us as we continue forward doing what god wants us to do putting out much more good content like this for you and uh, we pray that god would bless you and that he would uh, allow you to see the truth of the word of god and see things that uh that are just clear as day in the bible that's what we want to do just try to show you what the bible has to say not really what we have to say and so hope it's a blessing to you and uh, we will let you watch it now. God bless you and may God speak to your heart. Um, this is why you're all here tonight. You are here because you want to hear us teach on the pre-tribulation rapture and that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to talk about that and get you uh, up to speed on this doctrine. Now, uh, there is a lot of people out there who absolutely despise the idea of the pre-tribulation rapture and I understand what they're saying and uh, there, I have had a lot of people send me through the year, send me videos of, uh, men and women or just preachers or whatever, attacking the concept of the pre-tribulation rapture. And they always grossly mischaracterize the pre-tribulation rapture. And I'm going to try to uh, clear up some of those misconceptions tonight. Um, but I want to, um, I want to just warn you real quick. I know a lot of you wanted me to get into the Book of Revelation, and I'm glad to do so. I really am. I don't. I don't mind at all. Uh, but I want to give you three things real fast as we get started. And uh, tonight, I want to encourage you. Maybe you can. Um, maybe you can write a few of these things down. I'm gonna guys, I have got pages of very meaty information, very technical information, and I want to go through all this and just share this with you and uh, get the information your way. so if you if you want to write this down or uh, that will be probably very beneficial to you and uh, and maybe even at a later date, go through this video. again, this is something that's it, it can be it can be a little bit heavy. Uh, but we want to try to give it to you. Uh, but here, here are the three dangers in studying the book of Revelation. And I want to say that I do love studying the Bible. I love studying every book of the Bible, uh, but I noticed this, that there's a tendency uh, for young Christians, and when I say young, I'm not speaking of age, I mean stage. Uh, younger Christians, uh, baby Christian people, uh, that they want to study the hardest book in the Bible first. And there's no doubt in my mind, probably the hardest book in the Bible is the book of Revelation. And probably a close second is the book of Daniel. And uh, I want to say that there's a danger in wanting to study this book first because uh, the three basic reasons. Number one is that a lot of people, when they study the book of Revelation, they get so bogged down in the details of this book that they just absolutely just train wreck themselves in that. Uh, for example, uh, there's in the book of Revelation, chapter number ten, uh, the apostle John is given a book, and when he, he had the book, he the, he was told to eat the book, and in his mouth it was sweet as honey, and then it ta- it became sour when it was in his stomach. And I've seen baby Christians just just lay awake at night, just torturing themselves, trying to find out what that means. And I want to tell you that if you just if you just bog yourself down with the tiny little details of the book of revelation and you don't have a strong grasp or overview of the entirety of the Bible, then you are going to absolutely hinder your spiritual growth. Okay. So I want that to be known a number. Another danger in studying the book of revelation is that you can get in over your head very quickly as you study the book of revelation. Uh, I want to say that if there are things that if you don't have a strong understanding of the overall picture of the Bible, Then you're not going to understand what you're even reading nor the significance of it and so the book of revelation basically ties up all the loose ends in the bible and completes the canon of scripture and if you don't have an understanding of you know, the first 65 books of the Bible and have a good handle on that, then the 66th book of the Bible is just going to confuse you and you're going to be just so disconnected from what it's talking about, it's really not going to help you. Okay, so number three, the third danger in studying the book of Revelation is that all you do is you gain knowledge that doesn't change your life. You gain knowledge that doesn't change your life or your spiritual life or spiritual walk. I want to say that the goal of all Bible studies should be to know Christ in a more real way so that you can have a closer walk with him. If studying the book of Revelation makes you cold and, and then sometimes even bitter, then you need to evaluate why you're even studying this book. And um, I want to say that some people, when they get into the book of Revelation, the only reason they do so is because they have some sort of morbid curiosity or morbid fascination with the destruction and judgment of the end times. Um, That really should not be your motive for studying the book of Revelation. The, the, The reason you should want to study the book of Revelation is so that you can know Christ in a deeper and fuller way so that you can walk closer to him. That really should be uh, the reason for doing that. And so I want to get into this right here. The book of Revelation, of course, is uh, is right at 22 chapters and a great book written by the apostle John. And uh, and so written, I believe they say uh, 89 AD or so, and a great book. We love it. And uh, the, the end of the book, some of the greatest promises Uh, He which testifies these things says, surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I look forward to that. And so um, I want to just start with when we talk about the pre-tribulation rapture, I want to make a few statements to you. Uh, There is much confusion about the pre-tribulation rapture in these last days. The ones that often oppose this doctrine are found grossly mischaracterizing it as some sort of get out of all trouble in life card and that certainly is not the truth at all about this doctrine Uh, the pre-tribulation rapture does not promise that the christian will not face persecution tribulation or trials and a brief study of christian history will prove that christians have no promise of smooth sailing prosperity or ease and the christian life is not a resort but it is a battlefield i think we all know that Uh, if you think um, if you think that there are pre-tribulation rapture is some sort of get out of uh, trouble card then you certainly do not understand the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture that's not what en- i've never heard anybody preach that uh, but the enemies of the pre-tribulation rapture position oftentimes will attack that position saying that you know you think you're not going to have any struggles and everything's going to be okay and jesus is just going to come right before it gets bad nobody's ever said that okay and the ones who did say that were wrong in doing so but Um, The three main attacks against the pre-tribulation rapture are pretty simple. The three main attacks are, number one, that is it is a doctrine that is a get out of all tribulation and persecution promise. That is not true at all. Uh, The pre-tribulation rapture is not a doctrine that promises that you will be expunged and the exception of all persecution and tribulation. That's not at all. And uh, they say also that God says that his people will go through tribulation. So therefore, there is no pre-tribulation rapture. I've heard that many times. And I've heard people say that there is no such thing as a secret rapture. Um, I have heard men preach the pre-tribulation rapture for 20 years, and I've never heard them use the term secret rapture at all. I've never heard that term. I know in the older books that uh, there are people who may have used that, but I've never heard anybody actually preach that in my life. So. Uh, I want to give you this. These these arguments basically are completely destroyed when we we understand that God word God's word has promised tribulation to all believers, and He's promised persecution to us. So I want to go to Mark chapter four. I want to show this to you. Mark chapter four. Uh, God has promised persecution to His believers and to His people. Uh, verse seventeen says this. Let me pull that up. Uh, and have no root in themselves. Uh, and uh, and so endure before a time afterward when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake immediately they are offended. So uh, we promise we know that there is affliction and persecution coming for the Christian. And we know that. Let's go to Romans chapter number 12. Romans chapter number 12 and verse 12 teaches rejoicing in hope that the Christian ought to be this, rejoicing in hope and patient in tribulation. So of course we know that the Bible teaches that Christians should and will have tribulation in life. Uh, Number two, the second thing I wanna say to you is that we understand that the great tribulation, the great tribulation is not the same as tribulation that believers will face. Now, uh, some people, and God help them, I think they're just biblically ignorant when they say this, uh, but some people really think that uh, this verse is teaching that you need to be patient in the tribulation period. I've heard men say that, patient in the tribulation period. And that's not what that's teaching at all. We, we understand there's a difference between the tribulation period and tribulation that believers will face. There is a big difference between the two and uh so we certainly do understand that now the great tribulation is the term that is given for what is called daniel's 70th week daniel's 70th week and when the bible talks about the great tribulation we know that Daniel's 70th week is what that is talking about, and so in Daniel chapter number nine, we see here this passage. Uh, it says, 70 weeks, Daniel nine twenty four. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, and upon thy holy city." So that week there there is what we're talking about, and uh, this is Daniel nine twenty seven is talking about the Antichrist. And he said that he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That is a seven-year period. That will be the great tribulation that we understand and know. And uh, so that's what that is. So let me show you another verse in Matthew chapter 24. And uh, Matthew 24 seems to be a passage of scripture, a, a, a passage that most people get hung up on and they try to read themselves into that. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, Matthew 24, 21 talks about, for then shall be, notice this phrase right here, great tribulation, great tribulation. That in Matthew 24, 21 is not the same tribulation that we find in Romans chapter 12, where it says patient in tribulation that that is not the same thing this is a noun the great tribulation period that is coming and that will be here um let's see here the and number three let me say this the secret rapture term is used oftentimes by those who try to conflate the second coming of jesus christ with the rapture of the church those there are people out there who are trying to conflate the rapture of the church with the second coming of jesus christ and make them the same thing they are not the same thing they're two different events and i want to explain that to you more thoroughly in just a few minutes and uh it says here that um we know that in let's see matthew 24 verse 27 we know that there uh there is coming a day where everybody will see christ coming okay so we see here that um let's see here uh, let's just go Matthew 24 27 for as lightning cometh out of the east and sh- east and shineth even to the west so also shall the coming of the son of man be and uh, let's see here it says in verse number 30 and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and then shall all notices all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory so there is a visible return of the lord jesus christ we do not say that that isn't but this is not the rapture of the church this is not the same event there are two different events that we are speaking about and those who would attack the pre-tribulation rapture are oftentimes saying that no wait a minute hang on everybody sees jesus when he comes but the problem is he doesn't come and, and as 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 this, this is not going to be the same thing as the rapture of the church. He comes in two stages. There's the rapture and there's the revelation. OK, so you can't say that all raptures are the same because there's actually more than one. Um, I want you to understand this. In order to understand the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine, the position that we hold there and the position that we believe the Bible clearly teaches, you have to learn to do something called rightly dividing the scriptures rightly dividing the scriptures so 2nd Timothy chapter number 2 is where we want to go and take you 2nd Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 shows you how to study the Bible the Bible says study to show thyself approved unto God in verse 15 a workman that needeth not to be ashamed Notice this: rightly dividing the word of truth rightly dividing the word of truth so if you want to study the Bible you need to learn how to rightly divide the Bible now here's here's the problem that everybody basically messes up everybody especially these charismatics and uh, the church of christ they do the same thing the catholics do the same thing all denominations get into heretical positions and they get all messed up in their doctrine because they don't understand how to rightly divide the bible okay so we're going to talk about that for just a moment uh, the key to understand the Bible is to learn to divide the Bible correctly. And the three most basic categories of Bible division are Jew, Gentile, and church, Jew, Gentile, and church. Now let me prove this to you. First Corinthians chapter number 10, first Corinthians chapter number 10 and uh, verse 32, first Corinthians 10 32 says this, uh, give none offense neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Okay, Paul's talking, and he says the Jews, right there, the Gentiles, and then the church of God. I want you to get this, okay? 1 Corinthians 10.32, the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church of God. Those are three different entities, three different groups, three different types of people, and God deals with all three of those groups differently. There are promises that were made, to the church that were not made to Israel. There are promises made to Israel that were not promised to the church. And um, the great classic example of this is, no weapon formed against me shall prosper, which is found in Isaiah chapter number 54. Now, I've heard many people say this through the years. Uh, you know, no weapon formed you against you shall prosper, Brother Spencer. You go forth in Jesus' name. Amen. And and they always quote this verse right here, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Well, if I'm going to understand the actual literal original intent. That's what they're throwing around with the constitution right now. What was the original intent? I find it funny that a lot of conservatives and a lot of Bible believing Christians are very concerned about putting a Supreme court justice on the bench who believes in the original intent of the constitution, but they don't understand nor believe nor place any value upon the original intent of the Bible. They have no value for that. But the original intent here is talking, this is a prophecy and this will be fulfilled as in the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is when this will be fulfilled. This will be fulfilled in Revelation chapter number 19. And when God speaks, he says, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. We have to circle this word thee and say, who is that thee spoken to? Is that to the Jews or that to the Gentiles or that to the church? Well, I've got news for you. That does not apply to the church. And that certainly does not apply to the Gentiles. That applies to the nation of Israel as they stand in the valley of Megiddo uh, against the Antichrist, that—that's what that is—is is for, and so that is—that is what that is saying. So, um, and let's see here, uh, and this, of course, this is promise. This is not really a promise made to the local church, because if you go to Acts chapter number seven, you'll see that the the deacon, the first deacon in the Bible, uh, Stephen, was stoned to death in Acts chapter number seven. And uh, you find here that uh, they they take him out and they beat him and they stone him and uh, when Stephen preached that when they heard these things, Acts 7, 54, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Uh, But the Bible says, but he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus stand on the right hand of God. And then it even says here, um, (laughs) I mean, they stopped their ears, ran upon him with one accord. And uh, at the end of the chapter there, and he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When he had said this, he fell asleep. It means he died. So Isaiah 54, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Did that apply to the New Testament church with Stephen? I don't think so. It didn't apply to him at all. And so we have to divide the Bible into Jew, Gentile, and church. Now, here's something I want you to get. I want you to really understand this, okay? There is more than one rapture in the Bible. There's more than one. There are actually seven raptures in the Bible, seven of them, and I'm going to read them off to you. Uh, The first rapture you find in Genesis chapter number five, uh, when you find Enoch being translated. Enoch is translated in Genesis chapter number five, and I'll show this to you. Genesis five, verses 23 and 24, you find the days of Enoch were so and so, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That That is a rapture there in the Bible genesis five twenty four, the second rapture in the bible is with elijah and so we find here that second kings chapter number two uh, we're going to go there the second rapture that you find in the bible is with elijah and uh, this is what he has right here, and uh, it's, you know Elijah and Elisha are talking. And verse eleven, and it came to pass as they went on and talked that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and and they uh, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So that's the second rapture in the Bible. Uh, the third rapture in the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was raptured, per se, in uh, the book of Acts chapter number 1. We find here that uh, in verse number 9, that uh, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up right there in the Bible, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, and went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, and said, uh, which also said, "You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up uh, from you into heaven, shall also uh, shall come, uh, shall, uh, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven." and so that is the rapture there um, now I'll show you another one there's the, the fourth rapture I believe in the Bible is is when Paul died at the stoning uh, at, the, at his stoning in lystra and so second Corinthians chapter 12 uh, I believe is a rapture he says um, he says in verse number two I knew a man above 14 years ago whether in the body and out of the body I cannot tell uh, such an one caught up into the third heaven and I knew such a man, and uh, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. He was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which are not lawful for a man to utter. I believe he was he was raptured, but I believe God allowed him to go back. And, and uh, that shouldn't be really a foreign concept because uh, God uh, raptured Elijah. And I think that the, one of the two witnesses in the New Testament is going to be Elijah. Uh, one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation is going to be Elijah. So uh, that's where we are on that. And also in... Uh, the, the fifth rapture in the Bible is going to be one we're going to try to key in real hard on tonight. It's going to be First Thessalonians chapter four. First Thessalonians chapter four starts starting in verse number sixteen. Uh, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel. And with the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So that's the fifth rapture of the Bible. The sixth rapture of the Bible is Revelation chapter number 11. Revelation chapter number 11. And uh, we're going to go there where it says in verse number 12, the two witnesses here. And it's pretty interesting stuff. um, They were beheaded and uh, their dead bodies were put on display for three days and a half. Um, and all the wicked people were rejoicing over the death of these witnesses and uh, they were resurrected. Verse number 11, the spirit of God fell, uh, entered into them and they stood upon their feet in great fear. Can you imagine that? Just seeing these two dead men stand back up completely alive. And verse number 12 says, and I heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them so that is the sixth rapture in the bible and also the last rapture in the bible is at the very end it's at the second coming of jesus christ and that is in matthew chapter 24 and it's going to be found in verse 31 right before jesus comes on the white horse around that time you're going to see that uh, there's going to be a great gathering together a a catching away of all of god's people and it says in verse 31, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect. Do you see that right there? Gather together his elect from the four winds, uh, from one end of heaven to another. So there, there you have it, the seven raptures in the Bible. Now, here's the trouble. The difficulty that most people have with the pre-tribulation rapture is understanding how to divide the rapture of the tribulation saints at the end of the tribulation period. With the rapture and and the rapture, they're trying to. There's basically three raptures. They're trying their best to figure out the difference between them, to rightly divide the difference between the tribulation saint rapture in Revelation chapter 19, Matthew 24, with the rapture of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, and trying to divide that from the rapture of the church in First Thessalonians chapter 4. That is a hard thing to do for most people. Most people never really uh, will understand it. Though. Um, hey, we're going to uh, get into the book of Revelation so many things in the book of Revelation uh, that we can you know talk about and get into just it just really is important in these last days that we know what the Word of God has to say and uh, so our Revelation series we've been doing this for uh, we already did one week and uh, we're going to do another here very soon I got I got a little bit of information I want to throw at you Uh, but before we get into that I want to remind you uh, the three dangers of studying the book of revelation first the three dangers of studying the book of revelation first is number one that you'll get bogged down in the details bogged down into the details and we we talked about um the little book of revelation chapter 10 where uh the angel gave it to john and he put it in his mouth and ate the book and then it was sweet in his mouth and it became bitter in his stomach and people get so hung up on well, what does that mean what, what is that what am i supposed to do with that well If you don't get it, just move on until you find something you do get. I'm not sure exactly who said it. I think it was Mark Twain. He said, uh, it's not the things in the Bible that bother me. It's the that it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that bother me is the things that I do understand in the Bible that bother me And so don't get bogged down in the details So many people get bogged down in the tiny little details of Revelation and don't do that Try to get a big picture of the uh, big picture understanding of all that stuff first And then number two the one of the dangers of studying the book of Revelation is that you can get in over your head Really quick you can get in over your head really quick uh, when we're looking at stuff like this like Uh, this is Larkin's chart right here Um, guys I'm gonna tell you there's a lot going on there and if you don't have a healthy understanding of Daniel 9 and all the history of the world and all that stuff I mean there's a lot here to process this is some heavy heavy stuff Um, and and if you if you're not careful you can get discouraged and overwhelmed very quickly looking at all that stuff that's why we try to keep it simple here that's what we want to try to do so um, you know, and really an overall study of the Bible of, of the big picture from cover to cover uh, will help you to get a good understanding of the book of Revelation. And then also, I think the third the third um, danger of the book of Revelation, studying that, is that you just get your head filled with knowledge. And it doesn't change your life. It doesn't affect how you live. And really, that's the goal of all Bible study should be to help you to draw closer to Christ, help you to see more and learn more about the nature of who God is so that you can uh, have a better understanding of him so that you can adjust your life accordingly. There are a lot of people out there that uh, they just want they just want information. They just want religious education. And any religious religious education that does not translate into a holy life is nothing more than just being puffed up in your head with knowledge and so as we get into these things guys the point of learning this and the point of studying this is not just to have information it's to have information so that we can adjust our lives and if you are not interested in adjusting your life you just have just this hunger for you know just to know and just have an understanding without any any intention of doing anything with it in your day-to-day life then it's not gonna do any good for you it's just not gonna do any good so uh let's do this i got a couple things a couple charts i want to show you and i'm going to try to make all of these things available to you uh here in the very near future is what we're going to do on that so uh so stay tuned with me on that i'm I'm gonna do some uh some drops on some uh some Uh, some documents and things like that and uh, by the time we're done with all this we will have several several documents available for you uh, to have and to use in your own personal life and uh, we're going to try to make these things available to you but uh, I want to give you real quick the basic three overall views of the book of revelation and uh, these are the three different raptures that a lot of people debate over now uh what we're going to deal with we have the pre-tribulation rapture the mid tribulation rapture and the post-tribulation rapture uh these are three large views that are out there uh, very common views um but i want to tell you i believe in the pre-tribulation rapture now uh, let me adjust this a little bit here so that i can uh, explain it to you a little bit better now um the pre-tribulation rapture is basically summed up like this uh, that at the beginning of the tribulation period there will be a rapture of the church and you can see that right there in this graphic the church will go up and then after the seven year tribulation period the church will come down and that is uh, that is a revelation 19 here this is revelation 4 right here and so that is the pre-tribulation rapture that is what I believe and that's where uh, I believe most uh, most Bible teachers throughout history have come to some conclusion very similar to this and so and then there's also here what we call the mid-tribulation rapture Uh, these people are um, this actually was not a very common view uh rosenthal wrote a book in the 70s about this uh, pre-wrath and all that kind of stuff like that and it's very similar to this that uh, the church will go through the first three and a half years but then at the uh the midway point that the church will be raptured out and i don't believe that at all there's a lot of problems with that uh for more information on that go see mr pentecost book things to come which we recommended to you i think there's a link to the this book here and um and uh in the description of this video so go check that out and then also there's the post-tribulation rapture and a lot of people today are getting into this one uh where they believe that the church is going to go through the entirety of the tribulation period and uh, to do that, to believe in that angle, you have to actually conflate first Thessalonians 4 first corinthians 15 with matthew 24 and you just can't do it they're they're completely different and uh, they are not the same at all and so uh those are the basically the three positions that a lot of people hold to i hold to the pre-tribulation rapture position uh the one at the very top there and uh that's where i am and so uh, i want to share with you another one of larkin's charts we just shared this one a minute ago but i want to get uh just get into this a little bit more um <clears throat> this is where he takes the book of daniel down here and sort of overlays it with the book of revelation here this is a very useful chart Uh, he talks about daniel's uh, 70th week and he uh if you can see here he talks about uh, shows uh the antichrist down here and overlays it with a timeline in the church age as well And uh, according to him, he sees, uh, he believes, and and this is what Larkin said, uh, he believes that the antichrist will be alive, of course. And then at this point here, the rapture of the church will happen. And then with the very first seal, uh, the the white horse rider, that'll be the rise of the Antichrist, and that's the position that I've come to uh, in my study of the Scriptures in the Book of Revelation as well. So this is actually a great chart. He he kind of overlays the timeline of the Book of Revelation with Daniel, and uh, and really sharp stuff. I, I have I, I think the the body of Christ owes Mister Larkin a great amount of, of gratitude for, for all his work and things on like that. And so we will make this chart available and try to get you into this. And so I think tonight, what we want to do is I want to get into the seven churches, the seven churches, uh, that we see here in the book of revelation. And, uh, so much there, the, the church, of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, what does that say? Philadelphia and Laodicea. I thought that said something else. It's hard to read sideways, amen. And so we're gonna talk about these for just a little while here in just a moment. Now, um, here's a chart that I have uh, been kind of tinkering with a little bit. And I wanna try to uh, prepare this more and more for you here in the uh, the days to come, try to add a little bit to this. uh, But this is basically the overview of these seven churches. And uh, let's see here if I can zoom this up just a little bit. And um, I want to try to talk about the seven church ages. Now, uh, when we get into the Bible, we see in the book of Revelation chapter number one, that there's of course, the angel of the church of Ephesus and so-and-so, and there's the greeting to the seven churches. Um, and uh, you see there, you know, there, there there is a vision of the son of man. Um, but chapter two is really where all these letters start. And so seven letters, you got the Church of Ephesus, and each one of these is a great Bible study in of itself. I mean, just a tremendous Bible study. Um, The Church of Ephesus, you see that God says, I know your works and your patience. You can't bear them which are evil as tried them which say they're apostles. And or not and has found them liars, and uh, he says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because they ha- thou has left thy first love, uh, meaning this that uh, these people were 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 standing against the false teachers of their days, yet, and and in their fight of doing that, they had allowed their love for Jesus to kind of grow a little cold, and uh, oh boy, I think we all have to watch that. Uh, we really all have to watch that, guys, because uh, you know it's one thing to battle the false teachers of the days, but if you become bitter in the battle and you you allow your love of Christ to wane and to grow cold then um, you know that's basically what the church of Ephesus did and that's not a good thing they also have the church of Smyrna and he says I know that works and that tribulation poverty but thou art rich and by the way uh, can I tell you that the way God defines richness is not with dollars he doesn't use monetary increments to measure richness uh, you can have a lot of money and be a poor man. Uh, you can have no money and be very rich in the eyes of God. And uh, and so He says, <laughs> He says, fear not. No these things shall know uh, these things this house shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. And uh, I had someone not too long ago tell me that this verse right here says, you shall have tribulation ten days and they said that verse proves that the church is going through the tribulation, and I said, "No, it doesn't." Oh my goodness, you people are so bad at this. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, uh, goodness gracious! I, I just, I just marvel at the lack of understanding in most people. They, it's like they, you ever seen those old uh, uh, years ago? I think, uh, I think it was like the Unabomber or somebody like that would like cut out letters in a magazine, and and then like would like glue those letters into words on paper and anonymously mail those letters off and um, and I think people are doing that with the Bible they're just cutting and pasting and kind of making this this picture whatever they want it to be and they're doing that with the Bible and that's why context matters and that's why you can do all things through a verse out of context a man that's what people are doing with the Bible and so we have the church Pergamos and uh, he says I know your works and he said you dwell you, you, and where thou dwellest even where Satan's seat is it holdeth fast my name, and has not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who is slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Uh, two things there. Uh, first thing, Antipas. Um, I, I years ago, I was wanting to, to write, put a lot of my, uh, a lot of the things that I've written through the years. I wanted to put them all in print, and I like, kind of start my own, um, my own publishing company, and I wanted to call it Antipas Publication. And, uh, the reason I wanted to call it that is because Antipas, if you break down his name, Antipas, Pas pas meaning all, anti meaning against, basically this guy, his name was I'm against everything. And I loved that. I thought that is amazing. I want that. Um, and, uh, (laughs) but I, I, I haven't done that. So, uh, maybe I will someday, but, um. But it says there where Satan's seat is. Satan's seat is. Um, I want you to notice that Satan has a seat. He has a seat. Now, let me show you this here in the book of Revelation. Um, the word seat is found a couple times. And talking about the, the, the Antichrist, Revelation 13, two, it says, And the, the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And uh, Revelation 16, The fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, the seat of the beast, and um, I want you guys to know that uh, that is significant because the (laughs) um, the Catholics have the phrase ex cathedra, which means speaking from the seat. And it says, with the full authority of the office, especially the pope's infallibility as defined in Roman Catholic doctrine. Uh, I want you to notice that the pope's infallibility, uh, guys, the pope is exalted above the scriptures. What he says is ex cathedra, which means spoken from the seat. And so you cross-reference that understanding with the idea that Satan has a seat, his antichrist has his seat, and speaks from a seat, and Satan's seat is there in this area where the church of pergamosy is and uh guys i want to tell you there's some eerie eerie cross references there um, let's see here the um i just it just scares me and uh let's see here i'm just pull up this this exact definition for you uh it says ex cathedra is a latin phrase meaning not from the cathedral but from the chair do you see that i mean this is right off the merriam-webster's website okay let's just let's just pull this up i don't i don't want you guys thinking that uh, that i'm lying to you um but uh, it says here this is off dot com their website ex cathedra is a latin phrase meaning not from the cathedral but from the chair from the seat the phrase does have religious origins though it was originally applied to decisions made by popes from their thrones according to roman catholic doctrine a pope speaking ex cathedra on issues of faith or morals is infallible in general use the phrase has come to be used with regard to statements made by people in positions of authority and is often used ironically to describe someone speaking with overbearing or unwanted self certainty so ex cathedra is latin and it means from the chair from the seat and i took latin in high school for a little while a very interesting course. I'm glad took that. Uh, but if you notice there, when it talks about the seat in the book of Revelation, uh, the ex cathedra, the one who speaks from the seat, you'll find that uh, that phrase is in the book of Revelation. Very interesting stuff, if I do say so myself. And uh, so um, uh, so we're here at the Church of Pergamum, and then it says, have a few things against thee uh, because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Though uh, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and eat things, sacrifice unto idols, and commit fornication. Uh, we dealt with this verse in 3rd Adam 2. We're talking about the uh, paganism of the day and how that they worship the woman. And uh, there's always there's always a uh, connection between immorality, idolatry and sexual sin. There always is a um, there always is. There always is really a lifestyle implication and consequence to what you believe. If you allow the doctrine, bad doctrine, if you notice that, guys, verse 14, if you notice bad, bad doctrine in your church, then you're going to have bad living. That's really what it is. And this is why doctrine matters. Bad doctrine results in bad living. And you got to watch your doctrine. If you just keep your doctrine right, uh, then everything else will take care of itself. And it says here, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine, of the Nicolaitans, which the thing I hate. And uh, the Nicolaitans, there's a lot there, but uh, basically that means the ruler of the people, which is very similar to modern day popery. And uh, Catholicism has a lot of parallels to the things that are uh, going on here. So, um, but I want to say, he says, repent there quickly and goes on there. Great study, the church of Thyatira. Um, he says, uh, I know that works charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works to last be more than the first he said never think nevertheless to have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman jezebel you notice know, that woman, Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So you know, guys, let me tell you that there's always a connection between bad living and bad doctrine. There always is. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the hearts and reigns, give every one of you according to your works. Um, And so I I preached here uh, on this text on the depths of Satan not too long ago And we use that third Adam too. So uh, a lot going on here with the spirit of Jezebel I need to I'm gonna probably this Thursday night speak on the spirit of Jezebel. What is that? That is a that is a spirit that doesn't like preachers doesn't like preaching doesn't like to be controlled Uh, If you notice that Ahab was her husband, Ahab, was a wicked king. He was actually a very cowardly king, and he would not stand up to his wife, and uh, she always was running the show. And, and by the way, y'all, you you got to watch a woman who wants to run things all the time, who's uh, uh, just, uh, just uh, I mean, overbearing. Uh, a woman like that is in sin, and so you got to watch her. I, I, You know, I mean, guys, uh, there's, there's so many. I, I'm burdened about this. You pray for me, but uh, women are being assaulted today by Satan. They really are. They're being, uh, they're being lied to. They're being taught that you know you need to go off and do everything a man can do. Well, the truth is, God did not make you that way. God made you different. God gave you different skill set. Uh, you know, if if it was up to men to do all the things that women can do, then this world couldn't survive. I mean, there's no way there's things that my wife is really good at that. I'm terrible at and we compliment each other. That's how we have a good home like that. And I won't tell you that, that, uh, that women are being taught to be anything but women today. It's just really sad. Uh, what I see and, uh, and same with men, men are taught to be these effeminate little things, And, and really it is ridiculous. And so, um, uh, but they, this church here, the Church of Thyatira, they were good people. They had works, faith, patience, charity, had all those things. Man, they were right, but at the same time, they 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 wouldn't take stand against. The false teachers of their day they wouldn't stand against them. they let him in and I think really in a lot of ways the church of Thyatira is very similar to modern neo evangelicalism uh, guys like Ravi Zacharias and John Piper even though they're even though man they got great works great charity great service great faith patience all that stuff they won't stand against false teachers. You know, um, I I think John Piper is a saved guy. I think John Piper loves the Lord, uh, but John Piper will not step away from Paula White. I think that uh, Franklin Graham. I, I think Franklin Graham's probably a saved guy, probably a nice guy. I, I you know probably if I met him, i'd probably be a nice guy. But he he won't stand against the woman Jezebel. He won't stand against Paula White. And uh, very similar very similar things going on there. So very interesting little thought, and I uh, want to give you that. So let's go to chapter three to the next. One, and we have the Church Sardis here. Uh, he says this. Uh, he says, "Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain, and that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God." He said, Remember therefore how thou hast received, and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know with hour I come upon thee. For thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defied thy garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, uh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but will confess his name before my father. And so there was, um, <clears throat> there was a few things going on there and uh, this church was basically just hanging on. And that's basically sometimes all you can do really. And then you got the church of Philadelphia, man, a great church here. He says, I know that works and uh, behold, I've set before thee an open door. No man can shut it for thou hast little strength and has kept my word and has not denied my name. Uh, behold, I will make them of the synagogue, of Satan, which say they're Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet. And I know that I have loved thee, because I have kept the word of my patience. Also, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world and try them that dwell upon the earth." And um, and so the lot there with the Church of Philadelphia was a great church. I, uh, I mistakenly said that this was the Church of Philippi not too long ago, but I, I had to correct that as Church of Philadelphia. And then also lastly, the seventh church, the Church of Laodicea. And um, so this is the, probably the worst church. He says, I know that works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot, so that because thou art lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I'll spew thee out of my mouth. And so this church tried to be neither nor in a world that's either or and tried to live in such a way that they uh, they pleased everybody except God. And uh, I like a lot of the things that Vance Havner said about this church. But uh, I want to tell you that because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked, he said, I counsel thee to by me gold, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness did not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesal, that thou mayest see. And uh, here's a good verse right here. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, lots of times we think that love is um, pats on the backs and hugs and, you know, high fives. That's, what, that's how love is. But God says, I love you, therefore, I rebuke you. I love you, therefore, I chasten you. And um, and so there's a lot going on there. Man, I just I really just uh, am thrilled to get into this stuff with you. So I want to say this about these seven churches that um, three things, really. I want to say that and maybe, maybe you'll write these things down and maybe we can provide this for you in a document a little bit later on. But, uh, these seven churches, I believe three things about them. I believe that first of all, that they were literal churches that existed at that time, literal churches that existed at that time. That's what I believe. Um, and so you can't, you know, you can't just act like these are just some metaphorical thing. These, these were literal churches that existed. Number two, I believe that these are different pictures of a church throughout the history of his life. I think a church can go through a season of of where they're, the church of Smyrna, where they're persecuted. I think that um, that. A church can go through a season of Philadelphia, where God has given them an opportunity to do something amazing, and uh, and I think so. And I think also a church can go through a season of Laodicea, where they're cold and backslidden, and 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 really you can get so you can get so calloused towards God and, and so uh, so unsensitive. Can I use that word? Is that is that even a word? Um, and so hardened and unsensitive to God that you don't even care that you're not even sensitive to God anymore you can get you can get so hard-hearted that you don't even care that you don't care anymore and I think the church of Laodicea was a little bit that way so first of all these were literal churches that existed at at, at that time Number two, I think that, that these could be pictures of stages that a church could go through, different spiritual conditions that a church can go through, different seasons of his existence. Okay. But number three, there's an interesting theory out there. And I want to explore this with you for just a little bit. And maybe we can um, get into this some of just several charts out here about this. Um, there are many people who have studied church history and they have said that the seven churches are pictures of what churches have gone through throughout church history, and I think that's a fascinating idea and a, an interesting theory to explore. Okay, and and I want to show you a chart that is kind of explores this topic and look at it with you for just a little bit. Um, the seven church ages. And so of course you have calvary right here and then you have the rapture at the end and so um let's just let's examine this for just a bit okay a.d 30 through 100 you have the church of ephesus they were the apostolic church and so let's let's just go back to revelation chapter two and just see kind of see if there's some similarities there um in the early days okay so i know that works that i labor and you got all these people that uh they're folks who say they're evil and um, and he says, I've I somewhat against it because I left, left that first love. And so a lot of interesting things going on there. Then also you have the Church of Smyrna, the church that was under Roman persecution. Uh, man, the Roman people were brutal to Christians, just brutal. Uh, they would actually uh, uh, some of the things that Nero would do were just unspeakable. OK, so you got the Church of Smyrna and they were going through persecution. He said, I know that works in tribulation and poverty. And uh, blasphemy, they say they're Jews, but the synagogue of Satan. So, um, man, there's a, there's a lot there. And he says, you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. So a lot going on there. Pergamos, uh, the age of Constantine. And you also got the church of Thyatira in the Dark Ages. They say that this was the uh, the body of believers uh, that uh, had to, this right here, the church of Thyatira and Sardis. Uh, they say, if you study what, what went on in these churches, and you study the history of the Reformation and the Dark Ages, they say you'll see some amazing parallels, amazing parallels. So let's just look at that for just a moment, okay? Um, we got the Church of Thyatira, which is, uh, yeah, 600 to 517. Um, You know, there's the woman Jezebel in in these churches and all that kind of stuff. Um, Wow, very interesting stuff there. So let's go to Chapter 3 and uh, see if there's any weight to the church of Sardis being the church of reformation now you know that uh, there's guys like Martin Luther and um, all kinds of folks in this area and uh, trying to fight back against popery, and that that what was called the reformation came out okay so um let's just see what if there's anything going on here so um remember now therefore that was received and heard hold fast and repent there shall not watch, there is a thief come upon you. So um, strengthen the things which are ready to die, for I have not found that works perfect for God." And uh, so there's just, there's just a lot going on there. And uh, matter of fact, let's see here. Um, yeah, we got the uh, Satan's seat there at the Church of Pergamos. And so a lot of a lot of interesting things there. I don't. I, I, I this is a theory that I have looked at for years. And uh, I'd like to get all the information on it and try to go into uh, more church history on this. And maybe we can do a little bit more of that next week. Uh, but uh, the thing that really for me. The, um, now, I, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll just tell you guys, uh, this area of history, the first four churches, that from 30 AD to 5, 15, 17 AD, I, I have not read a lot about that. I mean, this is, to me, this is kind of a blind spot here. Uh, but from here on, I have read a lot about this. And to me, the the aspect of this whole theory that makes the most sense Is the latter two churches being from 1649 to now Uh, the age of the Church of Philadelphia to me is really is the um, the one that makes the most sense okay so let's look at that and uh, I, I believe that the Church of Philadelphia if there is anything to this the church of Philadelphia would be the church of England and church of North America. Uh, the people that came to America to, to, you know, basically, uh, start churches, the pilgrims, the Puritans, all that stuff. Okay. Um, let's just say hypothetically that church of Philadelphia was early America. He says, I know that works. Behold, I've set before thee an open door. Um, I want to say that, um, America is unique. I've said before, the open door, no man can shut it. Uh, America is unique in the fact that America has been really the only nation, the, probably the first nation in the history of the world to have full religious liberty. And because of that, was able to send out and preach the gospel here, but not only that, send people across the world to preach the gospel. It's amazing. It's amazing some of the things that, um, that have just happened in American history, uh, or and maybe even the English church. Maybe this was like guys like David Livingston and things like that. Uh, I think that that was the church of Philadelphia. Um, I want you to notice here that uh, he says a couple of times, he says, you've kept my word and has not denied my name. Uh, verse number 10, he says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation um there's so much there's there's two direct mentions of the word of god there and i want you to know that uh, the king james bible the the word of god for the english speaking world uh was was created in this time frame and uh, translated in this time frame you see here that 1611 is when the king james bible was translated uh and then also it was uh the, the edition we have now, which is not, it's not a retranslation. It's really not even a correction. It's just that they they uh, they unified the um, the type, the the font of the. Of the text, and uh, what we have now is a 1789, uh, which is not. I mean, there's really there's no difference, uh, largely than the 1611. All they did was they made all the spelling of the same. There was there was words that were spelled different ways in different texts, but they didn't change the word. They just made them all be spelled the same, and then also they changed the font. Okay, so that's the only changes that were really made the 1789, um, and so the Bible that changed the world, the King James Bible, came out of this area. And, uh, and so you see that he's, you've kept my word. And he says there at the end, you've kept my word. And also you've kept my word of my patience. So I think, I think that that is, that's if, if this theory is true of the seven church ages, I think that makes a lot of sense. I really do. Uh, you got guys like George Whitfield, John Wesley, you got guys like Jonathan Edwards coming out of this era right here. The greatest missionary movement that ever happened in the history of the church happened in that time frame. It happened in that time frame right there, so that to me that's very interesting. I, I think that's a lot of somebody needs to dig into that. I think I probably will in the near future dig more into that and bring some more videos on that. Okay, but also the Church of Laodicea, the Church of Laodicea, the the, the last church and the seven letters of the church, um, man, they they had prosperity because they'll say, "us I am rich, increase with goods, I have need of nothing." They had prosperity. Uh, I think that's I think that's us today. I think we have air conditioning, uh, we have health care, you have food. Um, The people that I'm looking at here in the chat here on my screen, you guys are the most well-fed, most well-protected, and most comfortable group of Christians who have ever lived. And I'm one of them. I mean, we really all are. We are the most well-fed, most well-protected, and uh, most comfortable, and, and probably the richest the richest group of Christians to ever live. But are we as spiritual as the crowds that went before us? I don't think so. I don't think we are. I, I don't see the Jonathan Edwards of today. I don't see the George Whitfields. I don't see the Spurgeons. I don't see all that. I don't see all that. Um, and I, I, I wonder and I worry about us. Are we really right with God like we think we are? I think we're doing okay, but I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're where we need to be. I just don't think so. So this Laodicean church, they had everything except God's power. And knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, and blind and naked. He says, "I comfort, I counsel thee to to buy me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich; and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed; that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear; and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see." I want to just say this. Okay. This is a verse, verse number 20. We always use this in the context of soul winning and things like that. Um, we say, you know, Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. And if he, if he hears voice and open the door, he'll come in and sup with you. And, uh, and, and we, I've used that many times on soul winning. And, uh, but that's not what that verse is. That verse is not speaking to sinners. That verse is speaking to a church. It's amazing how to think of that, isn't it? Could we be having services and calling them revivals, but they're not revivals? They're just meetings. I think a lot of times we call it a worship service, but there's not any worship going on. I think we call it our Wednesday night prayer service, but there's very little prayer going on. We call it revival. We call it worship. We call it prayer meeting, but God's not involved in any of it let me ask you a question um is it possible to run a church today without god (laughs) is it possible to run a church today without god well if you've got nice lights good program bunch of talented singers maybe even a roller coaster on your platform yeah i think so i think you could Someone said this years ago, and they, um, I believe it was an evangelical organization. I wish I knew the name of it. I, I, I saw the article years ago, and uh, they did a major study. They came to the conclusion that if you just found a moral businessman in the community and you gave him the average church, he could run it, and nobody would even know the difference. I wonder about us today. A.W. Tozier said this. He said, if the Holy Spirit were just to withdraw himself completely and just... Completely exit the building, most churches would go on and would not miss any, they basically wouldn't miss a beat. I wonder about that. And so I think today, as, as I study contemporary theological issues and as I see the things that are going on in American society and the things going on across the world and the things that are going on in the churches, I think maybe, maybe the church of our modern era. Is lukewarm, neither cold or hot, and God says, "I'll spew thee out of my mouth." I think basically the Church of Laodicea is the church that makes God throw up. That's the Church of Laodicea. Now, this other stuff, I got, I just, you know, I'm, guys, I'm be straight with you. This, this area of history, the first four churches there, I don't really think I know a whole lot about that era of time, um, because there's just a lot to process there. And, you know, most history books just kind of have a paragraph on each one of those eras. Don't really dig into it a whole lot. You know, I don't know if I know a whole lot about that time, but I think from here on, I think I can say that this, this theory holds water and this theory is plausible. And the only reason I presented to you is because of these three right here. I think there's something to it, especially these two as I study Christian history I think probably in the history of Christianity I know more about this era than anything else and I would say this lines up perfectly this lines up really well and so the question is to be asked um, you know when did the age of Laodicea start? I don't know I don't know if I know the answer I don't know if I, th- I don't know if I know much about that uh, but there was a theory, that came out that someone said they believed that the, uh, the age of Laodicea started with the death of a man named J. Frank Norris. Now this is just a theory, of course, interesting theory. I don't know if I necessarily believe it. Uh, but J. Frank Norris was, um, was really the last of people in history that preached open revivals on a nationwide level. He was a pastor in Dallas. I want to refer you to him and look at him. Um, You see these old revivals that he did where, man, like hundreds and and thousands of people would show up. And uh, old meetings back years ago, newspaper clippings of him preaching. This was back before the uh, the Internet and TV. He would preach all over the place, and people would get saved. I mean, big, big meetings would happen all the time. And they said that when he died, some men kind of tried to hold it together. Um, th- they say J. Frank Norris and Billy Graham, basically, um, they kind of crossed paths as, as J. Frank Norris was going out. Billy Graham was just getting started and, um, a lot, a lot of history with J. Frank Norris. if You can go look him up. Um, someone said that they think the age of Laodicea began when he died. Now there's things about J. Frank Norris I don't agree with, um, unbelievable stories about J. Frank Norris. Him and John R. Rice did not get along very well. They, they were, uh, they butted heads a lot. And I think it, was, it wasn't really doctoral, but it was more, more personal type stuff that they, they didn't really like each other. And J. Frank Norris apparently was a very, very strong, strong personality, very difficult to deal with. Uh, but J. Frank Norris actually preached against liquor all the time, preached against liquor. And, uh, there was the district attorney of the local area there, Uh, was a bootlegger and if I get the story correctly and the details to me are a little bit fuzzy but there was he would preach on liquor all the time and the local mafia and the bootleggers were after him because they thought he was trying to uh, hinder their business and one of the men that was after him, one of the bootleggers that was after him got into a car wreck not far from where J. Frank Norris was and J. Frank Norris went out there to the car wreck and uh, saw this man who was a great enemy of his ministry his body was busted all across the pavement and there was in the trunk of the car there were all these bottles of liquor that had busted and they said that j frank norris went out there and scooped up we took a broken bottle and this man's brains were actually busted out of his head scooped up the brains of this man into that broken liquor bottle and took that to church with him and held that that bottle up and preached on for the wages of sinners death he preached on that in his own church what a what an interesting guy <laughs> can you imagine Joel Osteen doing something like that I certainly cannot but um, someone said that they think the age of Laodicea began when guys like him passed off the scene I think there may be some truth to that I think so maybe something to that but it certainly is true today that we don't have anybody, we don't really don't have many people on a large scale standing for truth anymore, standing for what's right, publicly speaking against the ills of their day. I mean, any man today that gets on the internet and speaks about LGBT and whatever, oh, he's he's gonna have a hard time. And when I say that, I'm not speaking about, speaking against it in a Steven Anderson kind of sense. That guy's nuts. That guy, at the YouTube deleted his channel, they probably should have, that guy was, that guy would do Christianity a favor if he just renounced Christ. He's just a nutcase. Um, but where are the guys today? They're standing, standing like that. You don't find many. There are some, but you don't find many in this age of apostasy, age of Laodicea. The church will fail at the end, and that's human nature. At the end of every dispensation, man fails. And God turns the page, and so I think we're going into this rapture. I think this pre-tribulation rapture is real. I think uh, I think as we look at the end of this, right here in verse 22, he hath led an ear, hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Revelation 3:22. We find in Revelation 1 there instantly we see after this I looked, behold a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me, which said you notice that phrase right there come up hither i think that's a rapture and i think that's happening at the very beginning of the tribulation period i think so now someone asked in the chat just a minute ago i just happened to catch it out of the corner of my eye but does someone asked the question do you think the antichrist will be revealed before the tribulation well um he could be revealed but not as the antichrist here's something i want to throw at you okay um he could be revealed but i don't think he'd be revealed as the antichrist now larkin's chart overlays daniel with revelation which showed this a minute ago and he shows the antichrist right here and then he shows the rapture being this line right here so this is the rapture and this is the antichrist and then the rise of the antichrist happens right here i think maybe the antichrist if if the rapture were to happen tomorrow or let's just say the rapture were to happen tonight i think we probably know who the antichrist is but we don't recognize him as the antichrist i just don't think so now it says there in first this or excuse me second thessalonians chapter two that wicked shall be revealed um maybe he's here already maybe we see him but we don't recognize who he is i think jared kushner could be the antichrist the son-in-law of donald trump i think so he would be my number one candidate, and if you're not familiar with who he is, let me pull up a picture of him for you guys. Uh, but Jared Kushner is, uh, is my number one candidate for the Antichrist. He's a Jew. He, uh, he's, he's, he kind of has that smug, eerie look about him. <laughs> anyway, I mean, look at the guy. Um, he has direct access to the most powerful leader in the world, being his son-in-law right there. And um, and he was the one who orchestrated the peace plan that a lot of these Middle Eastern countries are signing right now. He is, um, that's who I, if I were to give my opinion, that's who I would give my number one candidate to be, that guy. Um, I don't, I wouldn't hold that, and uh, and that's my opinion right now, and I, I have the right to change my opinion at any time. If and so uh but this is this is the kind of stuff you need to look for look for a guy who has uh winsomeness and he's political he will step out on a world stage and be a world leader he'll promise peace and safety and uh there will be a jewish emphasis there check him out look him up for yourself so yeah as larkin put here he said there will be the antichrist the rapture will happen and then of course, the first seal will happen, I believe, in Revelation chapter number 6. Let me double check that, make sure, uh, see here. Um, let's see. Yeah, Revelation 6.2 is where the horses come out. And I saw, behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And so this white horse man, this white horse rider, Uh, Has a bow and notice that this is not Jesus. This is the Antichrist and a crown was given unto him Jesus already has his crown a crown was given unto him and went forth conquering and to conquer and so this is not This is not Jesus. This is not the second coming of Christ. That's not the same thing And so guys I want to encourage you that I believe we're on the door. I mean we are on the doorstep of this stuff. We are right there on the edge And it's time that we awaken to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. And God speaks that to our shame. So tonight I wanted to talk to you about this seven church ages and go into that and just show you what I think on that. I will prepare this chart a little bit more for you and let you uh, get this yourself and you can study it yourself. I think this would be a good little tool to have printed out, maybe put it in a folder somewhere and make you a little notebook of uh, stuff on the book of Revelation. But this is where we are. I believe we're right here I really know me correct that I believe we're right there in that little circle I believe that's where we are and um, so any day now any day Jesus could come back and he could uh, take us all away and that'll be it you know you think about the end of your life well the end of your life is imminent do you have anything you want to do for God you better do it now do you have a loved one who's not saved? You better call them. Do you have a thing you want to attempt for Christ? You better do it. Do you have something you want to give to the work of God? You better give it. You better give it. You better give it. I want to encourage you with that tonight. We want to try to give you some more info on the book of Revelation tonight. And I have, uh, I've been kind of studying it and loving it and enjoying myself and uh, trying to get into the Bible. I love the Bible. I love it so much. And, um, Tonight in the Book of Revelation, I want to give you what I would call the, the tale of two. Uh, the, basically, there's there's a duality, and I don't know what exactly called this, but uh, the tale of two worlds. There's there's the, there's there's things in the Bible that like there's there's two of them in the Book of Revelation. Maybe, maybe you guys can throw a catchy title after this. Maybe I'll give you. Uh, maybe I put this in a in a word study or, or a booklet or something like that. And maybe I can preach it someday. Uh, but in the book of Revelation, there's two comings, there's two thrones, there's two Christ, there's two marks, and there's two worlds in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to talk about that for a little while. And. Uh, and so very good. Thank you guys for that. And so we're let's see, two comings, two thrones, two cries, two marks, and two worlds in the book of Revelation. So let's get into this for just a few minutes. I'm going to pull up the Sword program, and we will get into this together. So we went through the uh, the churches, tried to talk about all that, and there's, uh, there's the church of Thyatira. I got into that as far as uh, trying to study on the doctrine of Jezebel, and uh, that was actually Revelation chapter 2. But Revelation chapter 4. We see what I would call the rapture of the church there in Revelation 4, 1. And uh, this is going to be the two comings, the two comings of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. Uh, This one is the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians 4 and Revelation 4 both talk about this. And I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was it as were of a trumpet talking with me which said come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter and so I believe that is a picture of the revelation or excuse me the rapture of the church and then cross reference that over also with First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 16 for the Lord himself shall ascend from heaven with a shout the voice of the Archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord and so that is uh, that is the first coming of Jesus Christ also you can use Revelation 4 1 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 but also 1st Corinthians chapter 15 where it talks about at the very end it says uh, uh for uh behold i show you a mystery right here verse 51 behold i show you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed uh, there are a lot of church nurseries that i think they need to put this sign this verse up as a sign on the uh, nursery wall we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed <laughs> i think that'd be great uh but uh, it says in the moment in a twinkling of an eye the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. I believe that is the pre-tribulation rapture of the church right there. And so that's the first coming of Jesus Christ. Well, there's another coming of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, and it is found in Revelation chapter number 19. And uh, we're going to get into that here. Revelation chapter number 19 and verse number 11 talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. The The first coming is the rapture. The second coming is the revelation. Jesus Christ's second coming is in two phases, the rapture and the revelation. And the Bible says, verse 11 I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he shall smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. So there's two comings in the book of Revelation. The Revelation 4, First Thessalonians chapter 4 first Corinthians chapter 15 and then the second coming of Jesus Christ Revelation chapter 19 and also actually the second coming of Jesus Christ is spoke about in Matthew chapter 24 now please if I've ever shown you anything if there's ever anything that I could ever talk to you about prophecy with is that Matthew 24 is not about the local New Testament Church it is about the nation of Israel and I know that may be difficult for some people to get but I I really think that this is this is the way to rightly divide the Bible uh, verse 27 for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west so even so shall uh they come the son of man be for where the carcass is there will the eagles be gathered together now guys you can take these verses right here and write um, in the margin of your bible revelation chapter 19 because matthew 24 and revelation chapter 19 are talking about the same event you cannot uh these they, they have too much similarities it is the same event these are the same thing and by the way revelation 19 and matthew 24 are not the same event as first thessalonians chapter 4 1 corinthians 15 and revelation 4:1. they are not the same event because the second coming of jesus christ comes in two stages the rapture and the revelation and i just gave you so much there it might take you a while to digest that but trust me that is something that you want to repeat over and over again and really drill that into your mind. And it says here, immediately after the tribulation. Well, what do you think? What do you think that is, guys? Okay. All see people walking around say, well, it says after the tribulation. What do you? Th- what do you think the tribulation is? It's the seven-year period. After the tribulation, this is at the end of the second coming, or this is at the end of the tribulation period. In those days shall the sun and the moon be dark, and the moon shall not give her light, and the sun shall fall from heaven, and powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in, in the clouds of heaven, power of great glory, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They shall gather together his elect from the four winds, uh, from one end of heaven to the other. That That is a post-tribulation rapture. That is at the very end. Okay, if you're still alive, survive the seven years of the tribulation period, you will be raptured up at the end of the tribulation. Not that hard. The Bible's not that hard. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to believe. <laughs> and so, um, I want to throw that out there to you. The two comings there in the book of Revelation. And um, and so and I'm gonna just throw this out there for free. Anna Banana says dispensationalism is the only way to read the Bible. I agree with that hundred percent. If you if you the only way you can not be dispensational is to be covenantal. And uh, and I, I just certainly, I, I don't understand that. A lot of those covenant theologian guys believe in infant baptism. So I, I just, I can't, I, I just don't see that in the Bible. So thank you for that great comment, Anna, right there. So there's two comings, the rapture and the revelation. Also in the book of Revelation, there's two thrones, two thrones. And uh, Revelation chapter four, we, uh, we can compare and contrast the throne in heaven, Revelation chapter four, with the great white throne in revelation chapter 20. so there's the throne of revelation 4 there's also the throne of revelation chapter 20. and uh let's see here in verse number 4 of revelation 4 the bible talks about this throne and there was a throne uh there were four and twenty seats upon the seats i saw 420 elders sitting clothed in white raiment and had upon their heads crowns of gold and at the throne proceeded the lightnings thunderings and uh, voices. voices there were seven lamps of fire burning be- uh burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of god before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. In the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, and all that information right there. Um, Here's what's going on in this throne of Revelation chapter 4. This is a happy event. Okay, those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat upon the throne, who liveth forever and ever. The 420 elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth for ever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, "Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created." Uh, you see several things here in this passage. Number one, you see white raiment. They were clothed in white raiment. Um, These people here that are around this throne were born again. White raiment is a picture of salvation. And so everybody here uh, that is around this throne is saved. And then also you see in verse number nine, everybody who's around this throne is giving glory and honor and thanks to him that sits on the throne. This is a happy jubilant throne. This is something where everybody here is having a great time. Unlike, uh, unlike, you know, <laughs> unlike the average church member in the in a church service, everybody here is happy and having a great time. Okay. And then also you see in verse 10, 11, there's praise to the lamb. Everybody's saying um, they cast their crowns down. They said they are worthy, uh, receive glory, honor, power. Uh, For that was created all things, and for that pleasure they are and were created. So um, that is is what's going on in this throne. It's a happy time. But if you compare the second throne in the book of Revelation to this first throne, you will find complete and total opposite of what is happening. You'll find here in Revelation chapter 20, verse, uh, verse number 11, the Bible says, And I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead and the things that were in it. And the death and hell delivered up uh, the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And so... um there's one thing that I wanted to point out to you guys is that at the very first throne, there was a rainbow. There's a rainbow around the throne. Let me go back to revelation chapter four and show this to you. Okay. Um, there was, uh, um, I had to find it. I didn't have it here. Yeah. Verse number three, the Bible says he, and the, he that sat upon, or he that sat was, uh, to look upon like a Jasper and a Sardis stone. And there was a rainbow around the throne. Okay. Uh, there's the word rainbow. Now, The first time a rainbow is used in the Bible is not some, you know, some social issue flag, okay? It's nothing like that. Um, The first time the rainbow was used was given to Noah after he got off the ark. God put a rainbow in the sky as a promise to the world that he would never flood the world again and judge the world by water ever again. The next time God judges the world, he would judge the world by fire. And so that's what that's what I believe is going to happen. And, and, you know, if you think about it, like the world goes into chaos and the rapture happens and all that, um, you know, who's going to run all these nuclear power plants? The the, the truth is nobody is. OK, when a quarter of the world's population dies and all these wars and and earthquakes so bad that the continents are actually shifting and, uh, you know, all these power plants are going to go. And I I really think that's probably what is going to happen to the world. The whole thing is going to basically blow up and uh i think that's what's going to happen but the rainbow was given the old testament to as a sign to the people of of um of the world that he would not flood the world anymore it was a a promise of i'm not going to judge anymore and in Revelation chapter 4 verse 3 everybody in heaven sees this promise of a rainbow around the throne of god meaning there'll be no more judgment no judgment for these people thank god for that but if you compare that to Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne, you'll see that there is no promise here of lack of judgment. There is no there is no bow around this throne because this is not a happy time. This is a time of judgment and judgment will fall. You find that uh, that the only thing white And the great white throne judgment is the throne itself. Nobody here is wearing white because everybody here is guilty. Uh, I want you to know that there uh, there is no giving of glory at this throne. You see, they would throw their crowns down and say, we give glory and honor. There is no giving of glory at this throne. There is only the giving of guilt on this throne. That is what's happening there. You see that in verse number 12 and 13. The books were open, and another book was opened. The book of life and the dead were judged of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So there's the giving of guilt and there is no happiness and glory and honor. There is nothing but sorrow and death here. Death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death and whoso was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so that's what's happening these people are not having a good time so there's the two two comings of christ the rapture the revelation there's the two thrones there is the throne of happiness and the throne of heaven and then there's the throne of judgment revelation chapter 4 revelation chapter 20. not only that there's actually two christ and the book of revelation there's two christ i want you to see this okay um revelation chapter 6 talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and Uh, things that are happening there and i want you to notice that everything that god does satan tries to imitate satan is really trying to be god uh he said i will be like the most high in isaiah chapter number 14 i'll pull that up for you real fast and uh that's where we need to go um let's see if i can find it real fast um yeah here we go uh Isaiah fourteen verse twelve says, "How are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are they cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast set thine heart." Notice this is what Lucifer is saying. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt, exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the congregation and the sides of the Lord North. And this is what Lucifer wants to do. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That is what Lucifer's desire has been and always will be, is to be like the Most High, be like Jesus Christ and take that, that worship that God deserves. He wants to receive that for himself because he really thinks he deserves it. And so in Revelation chapter 6, you see that there is a man with a crown on a white horse going forth conquering. But guess what? It's not Jesus. It's another Christ. There's, there's, there's two Christ. In the book of Revelation, the Christ that is the real one, and then there's the Christ who's not the real one, the Antichrist, if you will. The Bible says Revelation 6, 2, and it says, And I saw, behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So that is a false teacher. And uh, by the way, it says that he had a a bow, and a bow and arrow. (laughs) That is, um, Jesus never had a bow. He has a sword. And so if you notice, all the men in the Bible who had bows were wicked men. Esau was a man who had a bow. And uh, there's there's a great study there. Go study the men who have bows. And uh, and all you guys who uh, like bow hunting, I'm just going to throw that out there for free and cut up with you a little bit. But Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, you can mark it down. That is the Antichrist. That is the Antichrist, okay? Um, not only that, I can prove this. Let's see. Go to Revelation chapter 19. We see the final battle in the Valley of Megiddo. We see here in verse number eleven that um, let's see here. I'm sorry. Let's. Uh, I gotta go to verse number yeah nineteen. Let's go to nineteen. Revelation nineteen nineteen. You see that this. Uh, you see that the uh, the beast, the the Antichrist in Revelation nineteen nineteen. Is on a horse too? He said, "I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and the armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army." And so, there—that's that's who this is right here. But um, we all know that Jesus Christ comes on a white horse, and we we know that Revelation 19 verse 11. Uh, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a great white horse. Him that sat upon him was called faithful and true. Righteousness doth he judge and make war. And so, um, and all those who follow him follow him on white horses. And so, uh, great, great passage of scripture here um, but also i want you to notice that uh, these two christ they both ride horses they both ride white horses but also these two christ in the book of revelation are both worshiped as god they're both worshiped as god uh, revelation chapter 13 we all understand that everybody in the in the tribulation is going to have to worship the beast or be killed and the bible says verse number four and they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast and they worship the beast saying who is like unto the beast and who is able to make war with him? That is the Antichrist. Also in Revelation chapter number 16, you see that they worship him as well. Uh, it says in verse number 2 And they went first and poured his vial upon the earth, and they fell a noise and grievous sore upon men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. So this beast will be worshipped. Also, um, we can go, you can write down Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 matthew 24 verse 15. so revelation 19 verse 20. uh 2 thessalonians 2 4 matthew 24 15. all of those will point to the fact that this beast will be worshiped uh, also we see that jesus christ is worshiped in the book of revelation uh revelation chapter number five and verse 14, we see that the four beasts came and said, Amen. Uh, they worshiped him that liveth forever. You see also in Revelation chapter 11 and uh, verse number 16 that uh, the four and twenty elders fell, uh, which sat before God on their, on their seats, fell upon their faces, faces and worshiped God. You see that there. And then also in Revelation chapter 20 and uh, verse number 4, it says there, um, that those who are in heaven are those who neither did uh, which which had uh let's see here and i saw the thrones that they sat upon them and judgment was given to them and they saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of jesus and for the word of god and which had not worshiped the beast either his image neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands and they lived and reigned with christ a thousand years so there is those uh, both of both these beasts or both of these christ are worshipped but we, only, we know one of them is real, and so thank God for that. So there's two comings, there's two thrones, there's two Christ, but there's also two marks in the Bible. You know, everybody likes to talk about the mark of the beast, that Satan's mark, but you know God has a mark too. He has a mark as well. And so we all understand Revelation chapter 13 is where the mark of the beast is given, 13:16, uh, The Bible says, uh, It causeth all small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And we know what that is. And the verse 17, no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark of the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So that is the mark of the beast. But God also puts a seal. And by the way, that, that's going to be in the right hand or in the forehead, the mark of the beast. But God also puts a mark upon his people as well. Did you ever realize that, that God does that? Uh, Revelation chapter 7 and uh, verse number three talks about saying hurt not the earth neither the sea nor the trees till we have sealed the servants of our god in their does that say foreheads amen and so revelation chapter 9 let's look there and uh, verse number four we see the same thing commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth neither any green thing neither, neither any tree but only those men which had not the seal of god in their foreheads so there's two marks and you know i i tell you what everybody's got to choose between the two marks there in the tribulation period you're gonna choose between the mark of the beast and have the world system's approval or you're gonna choose the mark of god and you'll have the mark of god in your forehead and really, I guess things are no different now. Everybody's got to make that choice. Do you want the approval of the world or the approval of God? Because most of the time you can't have both. Most of the time you can't have both. And uh, that is a a that is a something that we all need to contemplate. And then also, lastly, let me give you this. Two comings, two thrones, two Christ, two marks, but also there's two worlds. Two worlds. There's the world that we live in now, and then there's the world that's about to come. And we know here, Revelation 21, verse 10 the Bible says it carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the Holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even a jasper stone clear as crystal, a great wall high. Okay, so that's the new heaven and new earth right here. And, um, Oh boy! Look at that right there. It's going to be a wonderful thing. This whole chapter is just rich, and has all these foundations and need. And and get this, uh, Revelation 21:23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to the, to light in it, for the glory of God did light it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And all the nations of them that which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So I thank God for that. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So there's this, there's the two comings, the two thrones, the two Christ, the two marks, and the two worlds in the book of Revelation. And I hope that's a blessing to you guys. But All right. Praise the Lord for that, guys. I want to show you just real quick. We were talking about Acts chapter 1 and how that the apostles did not understand that they thought that the kingdom should come now and then and jesus told them said no wait a minute i want you to go do something else and then we went into the church age um i want to show you this this is the chart that we used right at the very beginning uh this is one of larkin's charts about the book of revelation and uh, i want you to understand that uh everybody in the old testament they were they were looking for uh excuse me here we go everybody in the old testament they were looking uh, for the coming of Christ and they didn't understand. They thought that we would go from, you know, the first coming and go right into the millennial kingdom. They didn't see these two things here in between. Now they knew there would be an antichrist coming and uh, stuff of that nature, but they thought we were going to go from here straight to here and they did not see any of this stuff in the middle. And so I want to just point that out to you guys there. So, in Matthew uh, 6 we talked about the Kingdom that will come and things of that nature, uh, but at the end of the book of Revelation we find that there is a kingdom, and this kingdom is uh, is going to be amazing. It's it's, it's just going to be awesome. Um, of course, we see there that the uh, the beast is taken, and verse twenty one, the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse. which sword proceeded out of his mouth, the fouls were f- uh, filled with their flesh. So uh, that is the supper of the great God right there, and uh, and they took hold of the dragon and. Uh, Look what it says here, um, verse number four of chapter 20, it says, I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God. And so notice there that there's these thrones and there's people that sit upon them and so the uh the defeat of satan of course and then there's the great white throne Uh, but i want you to see that there is a a wonderful hereafter for god's people new heaven new earth holy city jerusalem and uh and so just there's so much there uh but at the end of the end of the bible there is a millennial kingdom and this chart right here talks about this. this is larkin's chart um just just wonderful let me just pull up this uh this part and um let's see what we'll see here actually it just this chart doesn't deal with it really uh, but the uh, the thousand year tribulation period is or excuse me thousand year millennial reign is going to be at the end of the tribulation period which is basically right here and uh and there. So we're going to just give you a few things, a few aspects about this tribulation. Excuse me, I keep saying tribulation, but about the millennial kingdom. Uh, the first thing I want you to know about the millennial kingdom is that it is going to be a theocracy, which means Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign just like he did the nation of Israel, uh, where he led them in the wilderness. And so there, it's going to be just like that. Now. Uh, Revelation 19 verse 15 is where we'll we'll start there. Show that to you. Uh, we're going to show you that out of his mouth goeth the uh, sharp, uh, goeth the sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Okay, and uh, treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the of the uh, wrath of Almighty God to reign. And uh, that's going to happen. But another verse I want to show you is in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter number seven. D- Daniel chapter seven. And uh, verse 14 speaks about his coming and, um, uh, let's see here Daniel 7:13. I saw in the night visions and behold one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came in the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom and all that all people nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed so uh, Daniel 7:14 is talking about the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period another thing I want you to notice is that, that this is uh, is going to be a theocracy. Jesus is going to rule and reign. But I want you to know that the capital city of the world during the millennial kingdom is going to be Jerusalem, and uh, Jesus will sit on the throne there and will rule from that from that uh, throne. Uh, Isaiah chapter number two talks about this, and we're going to get into that book of Isaiah several times uh, over the course of this study. But Isaiah chapter two. Uh, verses 1 through 5 basically says this uh, Amos, uh, the son of Amos, saw, uh, had a vision. Uh, Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Jerusalem and Jude, uh, Judah and Jerusalem. The Bible says, It came to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and nations shall flow into it. And as many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths for out of zion that's uh, that's jerusalem there shall go forth the law and the word of the lord from jerusalem and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore and so that is talking about the millennial kingdom now I saw years ago I think uh, gun control was a big hot issue years ago in America during the Obama administration and uh, there's several modernist preachers that got on TV and'll quote Isaiah chapter two verse four and say that just proves that we need to take our our uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, we take our swords and and turn them into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and basically we're trying to make an argument about gun control saying that God doesn't want you to have guns. Well, in the millennial kingdom, there'd be no need for that anymore because there will be no uh, no war anymore. Uh, but for right now, there, I would not recommend that as well. So uh, Jerusalem will be the capital of the world also in, in Psalm chapter number 48. And by the way, rightly dividing the Bible is the key to understanding the Bible, okay? so that's what's wrong with that guy Psalm 48 talks about the Jerusalem being the capital of the world uh, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in the mountain of his holiness beautiful for situation the joy of the whole earth it is Mount Zion on the sides of the north the city of the great king and uh, so that is a, uh, a prophetic Psalm about the future millennial kingdom and uh, we know that uh, that's gonna be in Jerusalem okay they're gonna be off there also will be officers in the kingdom Jesus will rule and reign but he will also have princes and thrones that help reign with him Uh, we'll see there that uh, King David is offered a special place there in the millennial kingdom in Jeremiah chapter 30 we'll see here uh, that God has promised David a spot in this kingdom Uh, the Bible says there uh let's see here uh verse number seven uh, alas for that great for that day is great so that none is like it it is even the time of jacob's trouble so you don't know, understand there that's that's the tribulation it's the time of jacob's trouble uh but he shall be saved out of it for it shall come to pass that day saith the lord of hosts that i will break his yoke from off thy neck and i will Burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. So uh, you'll see there that David it plays a special part in the millennial kingdom. Uh, and so um there we go. And so there'll be a return to the land and Israel shall be uh, completely safe there in the kingdom. Also, we see there not only David plays a part in the kingdom, but the apostles will play a great part in the millennial kingdom. Matthew chapter nineteen and uh, verse number twenty-eight is uh, what Jesus said: uh, "Verily I say to them, uh, you that which uh, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration of the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory." That right there is the millennial kingdom. Ye also shall. Sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there's going to be a special place for these apostles in this millennial kingdom. Be twelve special thrones for them, uh, but also there's going to be several other princes there. In the uh, the Bible uses the word princes. Uh, those who will rule and reign with Jesus. Isaiah chapter 32, we'll see there. Uh, behold, a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment. And I want you to see this, guys, that the the, uh, the people of the Old Testament, they didn't really see all this stuff that you see. So uh, Larkin's charts are very useful to help you understand that. Uh, but behold, a king shall reign in righteousness. Isaiah 32 verse one is talking about the millennial kingdom. And uh, princes shall rule in judgment. And so there's going to be several princes in the kingdom. But also, I want you to see, is I believe that a lot of the, uh, I believe that you and I will play a integral part in the millennial kingdom. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, of course, is an interesting passage. Uh, but the Bible says verse number 8 of Revelation 5, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, open the seals thereof, uh, for thou hast slain and hast redeemed us unto God by thy blood. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation has made us, uh unto our god kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth and so i believe you and i fit that bill i believe that we are uh people who've been born again redeemed and uh, the bible says that we'll be kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth well when will that happen That'll happen during the millennial kingdom. And so uh, very good thoughts there. But so we're going to have a part in the millennial kingdom. Uh, it'll be a theocracy and that Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. Also, this millennial kingdom, I want to say a couple things about it. That it's number one, it's going to be a peaceful, very peaceful place. Everybody in the world wants peace now. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, everybody would say, peace in the Middle East. <laughs> you don't hear that anymore. I guess people have given up on that, and probably they should, uh, because it's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. Uh, but the millennial kingdom will be a peaceful time. Nothing nothing bad will happen. There will be no wars or nothing like that. Uh, Zechariah chapter number 8 is talking about this and uh, talks about verse number 3. Uh Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion. Well, that's the millennial kingdom right there. And will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Well, there you go. That's the, be the millennial kingdom. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth in the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall yet, um, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem. Every man with his staff in his hand for every age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. That doesn't happen much anymore. Uh, you see, kids used to, when I was a kid, kids just ran wild, they, and nothing happened. But nowadays, it does, it's not that way anymore. Uh, but uh, kids will run sh- freely in the streets, and nobody will think any of it because it's a peaceful time. Thus saith the Lord of hosts: If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of, the, of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in mine eyes, saith the Lord of hosts. And so, I want to throw that out there to you. Also, not only will this will this millennial kingdom be peaceful but it shall also be prosperous it'll be a prosperous time isaiah chapter 35 i want to show this to you and by the way if you ever if you ever read the book of isaiah and you read something and kind of say well i don't understand this this just seems so glorious well just realize that it's probably talking about the millennial kingdom there's a lot there um isaiah chapter number 35 verses 1 through 7 says here, that I'm talking about the millennial kingdom being a prosperous time. The Bible says the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly, and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmen and uh, Carmel and Sharon Uh, They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are fearful, be strong. Fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. And uh, it also says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Uh, Then shall the lame man leap his heart and the tongue of the dumb, sing for the wilderness Uh, shall waters break out, streams in the desert and the parched ground shall become a pool and thirsty land springs of water and the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass. And so, um, you know, you see that the whole world will be a fertile, rich place. A lot of these deserts that are there now will not be that way. So we're talking about the millennial kingdom being prosperous. Also, Psalm chapter 72. Let's go to uh, 72nd Psalm there. And we're gonna talk about this. It uh, it says there, verse number seven. In his days shall the righteous flourish in abundance of peace, so long as the moon endureth. He ha- he shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the earth shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish the isle, shall be uh, bring gifts. The kings of she- Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts and uh, so you see that there's gonna be a lot of peace in the world Um, let's see here I I believe all the social justice issues will be settled as well in the millennial kingdom Um, for he shall deliver the needy when he crieth the poor also and him that hath no helper he shall spare the poor and needy and shall save the souls of the needy he shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence and precious shall their blood be in his sight and so there'll be no more social injustice in this millennial kingdom but I believe also that the uh, millennial kingdom would be religious, and um, a lot of people disagree about this. But I, I, it seems like to me that Ezekiel uh, chapter forty-six uh, talks about there will be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. Ezekiel forty-six, uh, and there, you can go there and read this. I won't get into this here, but uh, it does seem that uh, there will be uh, there will be sacrifices, commemorative sacrifices, uh, in the millennial kingdom. Uh, But Zechariah chapter 14, I want to just mainly key in on this one for you guys. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14 and verse number 16 talks about, uh, And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Now, Zacharias at the end of the Old Testament. So that was not fulfilled in the Old Testament. It was not fulfilled in the life of Christ. It was not fulfilled in the uh in the pauline epistles and it it definitely was not fulfilled in the book of revelation so especially during excuse me during the tribulation period so where do you put this well i think the only place you can put this into the millennial kingdom and so come to pass everyone that's left of the nations which came against jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king of the lord of hosts and to keep the feast of the tabernacles so um I think the Psalm 2 really kind of sums it all up and, and we're going to just give this to you. But Psalm 2 talks about the heathen rage and the people imagine vain thing kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. Let us break our bands of center. And I think that's going to be fulfilled in the tribulational period. And, uh, but, but guys, let me just tell you this, that uh, there's coming a kingdom. And this kingdom will last a literal thousand years satan will be bound but at the end of that kingdom they'll be really going for the tribulation period into the millennial kingdom there will be children that'll be born in this time and uh, and there will be one last battle satan will be loosed and uh, he'll give an opportunity to deceive again and then after that everybody will be uh, be thrown the great white judgment will be take place there'll be a new heaven new earth will go into eternity and uh, that'll be it that'll be it but where are we on this timeline? Well, we're definitely not in the tribulation period at all. I, I just don't think so. I think in this timeline right now, I think that we are right here. This is where I believe we are. And uh, the tribulation could happen at, ease, at the, the rapture could happen at any moment, then the seven years of tribulation, millennial kingdom, and then we'll go into eternity together. And so I'm looking forward to that. That'll be great. And uh, man, that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So. Um, so appreciate you guys studying this with me. So uh, that's what we got tonight on that. I just want to throw that out there for you and hope that's a blessing to you.